Okay, so I don't know um, where you want to start, and I don't know if you have a song that you want to play to um, introduce yourself, like a wow. nice little theme to set yourself up with. I don't have a good <gasps> theme right now. Oh, no. Mm. Mm. Do you want to think about it? Okay, do you have, because I was actually thinking about like trying to figure out where I first heard of K-pop, and I was actually trying to sort of like think this through out a little bit earlier today. Because I feel like the first time I heard heard of K-pop was around maybe 2010-ish. And I'm, like, trying to, like, remember, like, who was the actual, like, first couple artists that I actually, like, remember, like, sort of, like, hearing, like, actually listening to. Because it was, like, definitely around 2010, 2011 was when I first, like, sort of came into it. No, that definitely tracks, especially if you were a pop music fan, like, online. Like, if you were on, like, ONTD or, like, you know, our pop heads or whatever. Um, I don't know how old that form is, but... Um, yeah, it would have been like the Wonder Girls or Tiara or Kara. I must say, yeah, if there's like a Wonder Girl song you could sort of choose, I think that would be cool. Oh, okay. Well, I'm I'm always ready to play like Tell Me, which is a perfect, yeah, it's a nice like retro one to kick off the conversation. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast. Welcome to the Idol Cast. I am here today with a very special guest who <laughs> is not an expert on K-pop or anything related to idols, but he is an expert on music business and the music industry and all of that kind of stuff. So I thought it would be fun to kind of get him on and swap notes. And yeah, would you like to introduce yourself? Hey, my name is David Turner. I do a newsletter about the music business called Penny Fractions. And also my day job is at SoundCloud, which I guess is cool, maybe. Um, but yeah, I've been a fan of the show for a minute. I'm like excited to be on. Yeah, I like swapping notes because um, we've DM'd a bunch and I feel like I'm like always learning a lot about this part of the music industry. I've sort of been having to learn a lot more about, especially the last couple years with BTS's I was just about to say apocalyptic like arrival, but that's not actually. Sorry, that's a very bad phrase. I just no, feel... that's it's. It, I think it is apocalyptic. I feel like <laughs> I feel like their arrival has kind of detonated something in pop culture. Yeah, I, I guess we'll probably get into this much later. But there's definitely a lot about like um hype that I've like I 
yeah, that whole project is definitely one that I've like had my eyes on for a minute of just being like, I don't know. I guess I'll say this. I'm not like a big fan. I don't really like major labels. Like a, I'm like a old school in that way, right? It's like big major labels aren't good. Um, and I feel like Hive has definitely become one of the things where I'm like, oh, this is something new. And I don't know if I trust it. If I don't know, I definitely don't trust it. But it keeps emerging, getting bigger and more relevant and more omnipresent in a lot of things. So I'm in so yeah, so I, I'm very excited to be on the on the show today and to sort of like actually talk a lot about yeah, for biz and things. Yeah. Well, I think a good place to kind of get into it since Spotify has been sort of on everyone's minds recently um, is to talk about what happened at the beginning of 2021. It was, um, there were 10 days from March 1st to March 10th where a whole bunch of K-pop songs vanished from Spotify. Do you remember this happening? Yes, I thought this was like one of the more interesting things that happened last year within music, the music on the music biz side, because it happened and then kind of got swept under the rug to me pretty quickly. And I say this because, so on in the West, there's been like, it, it used to be a lot more frequent that music would disappear from streaming platforms, actually. That actually happened a lot more in the late aughts and the early 2010s when there were disagreements among record labels and like the big streaming platforms at that point, like YouTube but mostly. But that kind of sort of started falling away by the mid 2010s. Like Apple's never experienced like catalog removal to, to this kind of degree. So it happening to Spotify in 2021 actually was like pretty noteworthy. And to me, actually, I thought was a little like underplayed, if, any, if anything. The whole like background of this um, is that, you know, the company that pulled its um, catalog from Spotify is one of the big sort of music companies in Korea. And they they have their own streaming platform service in Korea. And um, yeah, it's kind of interesting. When Apple Music went into Korea, they, if I'm remembering correctly, were unable to get sort of any of the domestic catalogs or if they were it wasn't you know the big players and so Spotify I think really tried and they launched and yeah Kakao said no <laughs> <laughs> yeah and they just pulled everything yeah um, I will say Apple Music is actually one of the interesting things about Apple Music I would say is that they actually are pretty, have a pretty wide global footprint it's and if you actually open the Apple Music app you can kind of see this because they have so many different genres from across the world like you can find your uh french german rap russian rap playlist if you really want to get to that russian drill kind of stuff but they actually aren't really that successful in most of those markets so it actually makes a lot of sense to me that, that even though they might have some catalog they probably don't have the actual catalog and the actual artist that most folks want or spotify when entering south korea Definitely, and I gleaned this a lot from the press releases and the news stories around this, was they were really trying to make an effort to say, like, we are making a, our presence felt. And they also, like, bought a bunch of billboards. They did a lot of, like, they did a big push to try to, like, make it seem like Spotify was about to take over, like, K-pop, basically. They, like, really tried to do that. Yeah, they announced, like, all these new playlists, like, for Korea, like, Korea hits and, like, whatever, you know. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And then Kakao was like, mm, I don't think so. You're not the boss here. 
Yeah, and so they ended up like having this disagreement, which I thought was really, and, and I guess I'll start to say this, I guess, having some, a little bit more knowledge of how this stuff kind of works, it was really interesting to read it in the press because basically both companies just kind of threw blame at each other. And then they kind of, after two weeks, they came to some kind of agreement that wasn't actually like clarified as to like who won this like sort of public tiff. And I think that's actually kind of why I meant when I said that it was interesting to me that how this was kind of like swept under the rug. Because this is kind of one of those stories that I feel like in light of the recent news around Neil Young and the um, boycott of Spotify because of the Joe Rogan stuff, like, I think, like, there's impetus for a lot of folks to try to, like, move these stories along. Like, I don't think people at any of these companies want there to be this perception that, like, catalogs are missing or that the streaming platforms can't, like, provide you with all the music at, that you need at once. So I think there was kind of a... I, I, I may like, not to get too conspiratorial, but I do think there was in everyone's interest that this sort of like moved quickly and didn't get too, it didn't drag out for months or anything. Yeah, because I think for a company like Kakao, you know, they did end up putting the music back on, which was great for the artists that make, you know, they have a lot of global fans who yeah. use Spotify to stream their songs in like America and I don't know, Brazil or whatever. But um, domestically, you know, Spotify has not conquered the market. It has not taken off. It, no. it you know, it occupies a very tiny slice. Um, I went looking around for sort of Korean reviews of Spotify. And there was one I found that was pretty good. And it said something like, you know, the service is great if, they were, if you like foreign music essentially because <laughs> um, <laughs> the com one of the biggest complaints was that the way that the songs were labeled did not make sense to this like domestic Korean speaking Korean um, uh... which which is something that I've also encountered on kind of these international platforms when looking for like Bollywood songs or like you know Tamil film songs um, or even you know Japanese songs um, and Korean songs as well but yeah they may not be labeled the way you expect and they may not be, you know, um, categorized the way you expect. And um, yeah, there can be some sort of oddities with how foreign music is sort of squished into like the expected um, like Western sort of um, like metadata scheme. Yeah, I, I would also, this is also something that is also illuminated per genre as well. Classical music mm, and yes. sort of non-pop oriented stuff just yes. doesn't quite make as much sense rap and actually uh, actually quite a bit of even sort of m music from latin america the artists sort of like stuff the, the way that artists are sort of tagged and stuff sometimes also doesn't fully make sense within sort of the streaming paradigm which i guess there's a book that's really good called um i'm trying i'm looking at it now of selling digital music formatting culture that I think, it's, I think it's Jeremy Wade Morris wrote that book. And I think in that one, he sort of traces a lot of the sort of like, like sort of the actual like aesthetics and sort of how those platforms sort of operate back to sort of Winamp and sort of the late 90s sort of like music players. And like, if you think of it like that, it sort of makes sense that a lot of these are not really built for music that really wasn't like highly popular in like the late 90s or whatever. So it sort of makes sense to me that like, as these platforms try to go to other markets, they also really aren't attuning themselves to these actually those local domestic markets. Yeah, and I think there is an assumption that 
you know, you can just sort of drag and drop these platforms into other cultures and into other countries. But yeah, it doesn't necessarily work that way. Because one of the other things that's interesting about Spotify in Korea is that they do not have, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> I like drank my drink and now it's gone. Um, So yeah, they do not have a free version. And the reason for this is you have to go all the way back to like 2000 when, you know, um, Korea didn't get Napster. They had this service called Soribada, which was kind of a Napster-ish, like peer-to-peer service that really, it did the same thing that Napster did in like the American Western market, caused a huge fuss um, and had the record, you know, the record industry group like um, Furious and they ended up shutting it down in 2002. But there was another service that launched at the same time called Bugs that was a streaming service, uh... a free streaming service, right? And so um, the peer-to-peer service ended up, I think, morphing into something else. But Bugs, what happened with that was um, the guy that started it ended up having to like sell, you know, sell the company. Um, and then he went to jail. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in 2005 and so yeah that's why there's no free you can't have a free streaming service in Korea thanks to this incident right and um, so what has happened is so Kakao the company that was fighting with Spotify they are the owners of the biggest streaming service in Korea called Melon and Melon uh, used to be owned by SK Telecom. And SK Telecom used to offer it at a discount on your phone. Yes. <laughs> and so you can see why. And I think even though SK no longer owns Melon, they still have some kind of deal with Cacao. And I think you still do get a deal, like a discount. So, you know, these domestic services have deep roots and they're really attuned to the local market. And so, like, if you're a Spotify, like, parachuting in, you know, how are you competing with this service that really knows the market, knows that there's no free version, you can offer this discount, because it's literally just comes on your phone? Yeah, I mean, I think that's one of the things that I found was, I found was super interesting, sort of, so earlier this year in my newsletter, no, oh, it's 2022, last year, 2021, in my newsletter, I wrote about trying to like piece together a little bit of history of these sort of of the different sort of businesses and sort of the big labels within South Korea. And the role of telecoms I found was I found extremely interesting because I think telecoms in the United States at least also have a fairly like important role and play an important role in music streaming that is often very like under discussed because like you have like a lot of like a uh, family deals or sort of like discount deals with like Apple, Spotify, or like basically almost all the different streaming services have some kind of deal with some kind of telecom. That's also one of the reasons why Spotify is super big in Latin America is because it was able to get a few like big telco deals like pretty early. And also, so I think is what you're sort of getting at now is one of the reasons why Spotify and Apple Music have struggled to sort of replicate their success that they've had in the US, Europe, and certain Latin American markets is because when they go to Africa, the Middle East, or, or Asia, 
there are already incumbents in those spaces, and they can't simply just sort of replace 25, 30 years of history just because they have a new app or whatever. Yeah, and I mean, there is a bit of glamour to it, and I think there is a difference with an app like Spotify going into Korea because I think the people that are interested in Spotify are the K-pop fans looking to boost, you know, whoever their favorite group is in the Spotify charts. Yeah. Um, And so you do have the fans interested in competitive streaming um, who will, they'll pay and they'll sign up and join. I'm on the next level, yeah. 절대적 룰을 지켜 내 손을 놓지 마라 결속은 나의 무기 광야로 걸어가 알아 내 홍보랑 위협에 맞서서 체크다 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 Spotify just released their like most recent like quarterly results and they were like middling enough to sort of make the stock sort of dip dip a bit. Um, and one of the things that I've been following basically since like they went public in 2018 was that if you look at their actual like growth and look at where they're growing, they're like growing globally. It's always really clear they are not really growing outside of, again, the United States, Europe and Latin America. They will tout the rest of the world is how they frame it. But if you look at it, they're never adopt they're never pulling in paid subscribers from the rest of the world it's usually just people with free accounts and it makes sense to what you were just sort of saying that like the appeal of it is people who are eyeing the west it isn't like this is something that can replace sort of the domestic services that are already being provided yeah yeah it's either you're streaming you know blackpink because you want Blackpink to rise on the global Spotify rankings because then they'll make the news in America and then, you know, um, or you're just, you just like Western music and Spotify has a pretty good Western music catalog. So, you know, maybe you're um, a fan of like, I don't know, like Rush or something in Korea and, you know, Spotify has a better Rush catalog than Melon probably does. So. Yeah, and that yeah, and that ends up sort of like sort of changing it, like sort of being the big dynamic there. But I think one of the one of the things I think that that particular story with Cacao sort of like showed, and I think I think it did a couple of things. And I think if you read the American press around this story from early 2021, is that most people didn't know any of this actually, <laughs> like at least of like the Americans covering K-pop suddenly or having to just get the assignment from their editor that a thing in k-pop is happening get us those clicks um none of them seem to have much idea of this and seem to be a little bit confused as to why there was this tension and i kind of thought it was like a little bit funny at least personally because as, as i was trying to research and trying to read up more on this stuff it was like oh yeah like actually also a lot of this is pretty new and I say new, like relatively new, like obviously, so SK Telecom, which is obviously like is a big telco, it's like they've been around for since like the mid 20th century. So they are obviously not like a new firm, but the sort of like impact and sort of the like, sort of like what, and sort of their like role within sort of, I guess, sort of like Korean music 
has only really been sort of a slightly sort of newer thing. So like in some ways I was a little surprised when reading coverage that more folks like weren't like attuned to that because it isn't like they had to go back to like the early 20th century to get all the knowledge. They just had to go back to like the 90s. It isn't like you have to like, I'm sorry, I'm like a music nerd. So I have like history books that go back like hundreds of years. You didn't have to do that. You only had to go back like a couple decades or even to the 2000s for a lot of this. But that even for a lot of folks was kind of like, uh, eh, that's like a, a lot of that's really ancient history. Like I'm just trying to get to happen what's happening right now. Which I think, you know, the the K-pop culture industry, you know, thanks them for their service because <laughs> that, you know, that that's the ideal, right? They don't necessarily want people digging in and looking under the hood um, because, yeah, it, it is the telecom companies. They are big, but I think the even bigger player are the Chaebol companies who are the, um, if you go back into Korean history, I mean, they kind of pulled themselves up after World War II, the Korean War, then they had all of these sort of authoritarian regimes. Um, and then had this real, like, I guess, starting in like 1980, they had sort of a slow democratization period, sort of coupled with this big economic boom that went hand in hand with telecommunications growth. Mm. And what ended up happening was sort of the government took their KT Telecom and um, basically were like, okay, well, we're going to farm out some of this stuff to the the big chayball companies who are the ones that get stuff done. And the chayball companies are these family-run business conglomerates, essentially, and they have a million different subsidiary arms that all work together um, and they'll work with each other. Um, and so when you look at the history of K-pop, you're looking at these like, you know, fans like to talk about the big three, meaning yes. SM, YG, and JYP. But the big three are not like a cartel. You know, the big three is media shorthand in Korea for the big three talent agencies. The cartel are the ones you know, 10 steps above them holding like, the giant bags of money. And that's like, you know, SK group, that's CJ group, that's the LG group. You know, these are the the big three. I feel that part of the sort of big three trans like sort of idea in- feels like it's borrowing from the major label concepts in the West of Universal, Sony oh. and Warner, because that. Because what you said is correct, and I think that's kind of like a strange thing where I think people, fans, correctly perceive a lot of power in labels, but I think they perceive that power in label coming from the like a Western side of labels, not how labels are actually sort of constituted in South Korea. And I, I think I've, I know I've probably done this as well in my own writing as I, as I think about it now, but I actually do think that that may be a fan conflation of like, oh, these are the big labels, they have all the big acts. That must mean where the power resides is here, because that's how it is in the West. But that is not at all actually really comparable, except for maybe maybe now in 2022, and we can get into this later, that may start be starting to shift a little bit. Mm -hmm. But it certainly was not the case of that 
in back in the 80s or 90s at all. Oh my goodness. No, not in any any way. And that's that's actually really interesting. I hadn't thought about that, but you might be right about the fan conflation where yeah, they they just hear these three names and just sort of transpose that onto yeah, like Warner and Universal. Um where really that's it's so that it's not the same. Um and you know, if you go back to where I think things really started to sort of hit their current trajectory, which is, I guess, the kind of around 2010-ish. But you actually had, you know, quote unquote, the big three kind of band together to try to get some kind of leverage over like CJ Group and um, SK, which it didn't work and they ended up having to sell everything off to KT. But um, yeah, it's, you know... All of this stuff is out there, but you you just kind of have to piece it together. And I think if you're just getting handed an assignment from, you know, an editor or something, it's probably not worth going back to look at press releases from 2012. No, it probably isn't. And even, I guess I just want to tease out the, the big three, because I think exactly it's like a bit interesting, because also the big three, at least again on the Western side, that's a fairly new construct the last 10 years as well. Like that, there used to be like the big six was like kind of how folks sort of like colloquialize major labels. I think starting like around like the late, yeah, the late 70s, late 70s, early 80s, like the big six. And in, in the United States, I, I guess the UK is a little bit different, but like the United States in particular, like there was the big six and then that eventually became like the big five and then the big four. And then when EMI was basically like broken up in like the early 2010s, um, it was now the big three. But I think it's interesting because the because the power that people assume of major labels is often to me still in that 80s mindset where it's the Michael Jackson thriller era where it's like a major label can produce a star like Madonna, Prince, Michael Jackson kind of thing that you sort of see replicated like a Taylor Swift, Post Malone, Ed Sheeran kind of The Weeknd, Drake kind of equivalents now. But it's kind of odd if you do think of that contiguously because like, those labels back then were like were competing with each other, had ups and downs, and weren't like steady forces. Versus the big three labels now feel fairly like firm and rigid, like they've been around forever, but are still themselves pretty new concoctions. Like Sony didn't arrive in music until the late '80s. I mean, Sony. Well, okay, sorry. Sony has been in music since like the '60s, but like Sony as like Sony Music Entertainment renamed like 1991 universal music group arrived in the late 90s and warner as a big entity was big through the 70s and through the 90s but like started actually waning in popularity in the 90s had a little bit of resurgence and it's kind of like been middling and like third place for a while and i guess to transfer it to like south korea it's like if you look at these three big talent groups as sort of the equivalent and you sort of assume that like oh they have all this kind of power it's like but that power is actually not the decades power that comes from the major labels in the U.S. who have like history of like owning like Columbia Records. So like um, Adele's on Columbia, Bob Dylan's also on Columbia. Like that's kind of a like legacy of like nearly a century that doesn't quite exist quite the same way over here. Even though I think fans, like as you were sort of saying, kind of like imbue a lot more sort of like omniscience to these players and i think in a way it's self-serving to them because it's like oh well if people perceive us as being all-powerful 
it, I don't think that really is bad for them at all anyway. k-pop kayfabe um and i I think it serves the all of the interested parties quite well because it gives fans like a little sandbox to play in um and you know one of the sort of things that k-pop has really taken hold of and run far far ahead of the western industry with are are things like okay so in k-pop um starting again i think where where I think things really started to change um, to the current path sort of around, yeah, like 2010, 2011, 2012, is you start to get all of these um, chart shows on television where fans get to vote and all of these sort of metrics factor into like who wins the show that week. And um, part of that is like apps, you know, these voting apps, and a lot of them are pay to vote. And, you know, you start to see this kind of... um, corralling of fans specifically of k-pop specifically globally you know (laughs) these global fans onto these apps and get them invested in these games because that's what that is you know getting your getting your group to the top of like music bank that's not i mean that's a game and you're right that is something that truthfully yeah that's something that the west has not really I mean, I think only very recently has again tried to sort of poke into poke its way into. I think that's I think that's basically what the play for NFTs and a lot of that stuff is. It's trying to like gamify stuff in, right. towards that direction. Way too late. Way too late. <laughs> Korea, yeah. Korea has already oh they have perfected and they're already racing far ahead. I mean, to be honest, like they're like light years ahead of where the Western industry is right now when it comes to this kind of making money from music that's not from music um so i kind of want to like ask a question or two to go back a little bit if that's cool oh yeah of course one of the things that i thought was super interesting again i guess i'm just trying to like uh, and this is my own sort of like i'm education in a way but one of the things i just thought was interesting was sort of the rise of labels in the 90s and the early aughts that came from former pop stars basically and sort of seeing that I thought was really interesting to me because I again would say in the United States especially in the United States and I especially I'm gonna square rap music with this especially and that there's always this idea of like artists having their own labels or having their own imprints and them being able to sort of like have ownership and I always as a kid found it kind of confusing that like like Eminem has like shady records. So like Eminem has his own record label. He has like Royce to Five Nine, Slaughterhouse, like all these other artists on his label. But it's also like this weird thing where as a fan, you're now supposed to imbue Eminem with like businessman like 
attributes. <laughs> like, oh, Eminem's like has to like listen to records or he has a good ear for records or stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Which like, it's kind of like maybe, maybe not. But I think the thing that I started realizing and then I'll contrast is that like Gucci Mane had like a record label and I've, I've been listening to a lot of like Gucci recently. Um, but like Gucci Mane has like had his record label 1017, which was through like Atlantic because he was signed to, because he was on, I think, Asylum. And then eventually when he came back, his like, new records were on Atlantic. These are all owned by Warner, so it doesn't really matter with what the, na- the names are. Um, and like I remember being like really confused because there was always this stuff where it's like, oh, well, you know, Gucci's not a good boss. Like, he doesn't do right by his artists. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He's like a rapper. He's not signing checks. Or if he's signing checks, he's not the one that's like, he's not the one that's like, orchestrating the business or like he shouldn't be because that's not like his job or even if it is his job that's not really what I should be like grading the musician on is their like business acumen at like having an imprint on a major label but what was interesting to me is that because you mentioned JYP and it's like oh that actually is one of the big ones and that came from an actual artist and I know that and I, I know like Cy and there are others who've like built out other labels from their own success. And it seems to me that they, the, what happens there, and it may just be the difference of the markets, it's like, oh, they aren't within a major label system, so they aren't kind of being puppet, puppet mastered basically from, from this, and instead actually can sort of spin off their own businesses. Or at least from my point of view, it seems like they have a little bit more autonomy and maybe a little bit more agency to like have a real business that isn't automatically connected to one of the big three record labels yeah um i mean i I think yes and yes and no i think back in the the 90s like the 80s and 90s um and i I think i've talked about this before but like the pop industry like like what we think of as like pop music like that was built out of nothing in the 80s Like, like korea did not have i mean they had music like they had a lot of music but they didn't have like pop music yeah like what we think of as pop music and and so like they had to the kind of build and professionalize their their industry out of like nothing in like the mid 80s um and so i think by the time like a guy like lee suman um who started sm in 1989 um you know he was i mean he i think he he was and still is like a tech guy really um and he you know he was an artist too but you know, he was able to just come in and, I mean, it was just the Wild West, basically. Yeah. Like, he could just start, like, he could just start a company and start doing stuff. And, um, you know, I think it's the pretty much the same with YG and JYP as well. And, and a lot of it has to do with connections. And I think one of the reasons that you see these former artists starting companies is that they had connections. And so they could, they knew the person who could get them on TV or who could get them, you know, they, they had an in somewhere, like they had that personal connection. And that makes, that really makes all the difference. And I think, you know, you probably would have to go back to like, like the Brill building era or something, you know, to, or even, I mean, I don't know, maybe before to have sort of an equivalent, you know, someone could just show up and have a good song and yeah. be like, okay, Hey, yeah, sure. Record it great you can do the roger rabbit we're gonna put you on tv like (laughs) um and that's that's i feel like that's kind of the story of the 90s and i think 
you know, Korea has a lot more in common with like sort of how things developed in places like Russia and Brazil and India um, than maybe Japan or Mm. America. Um, And just because they had to cram so much of that modernization and professionalization into such a short time time frame and then it didn't help too that in 1997 you had the imf come in yeah and say okay well now you're gonna have foreign like you have to have foreign ownership you have to allow these you know foreign hedge funds to come in and invest so before that point it really was you know just a very different market yeah, and also I will also say I know that this is probably stuff I didn't say that I know this is stuff you've covered in previous episodes, especially more of the historical ones. I just wanted to mention it just because I feel like there's some amount of I think again this is again coming from my more like just like more Western and more Western music sort of background where I think that there's like kind of this like assumption where it's like artists have like their own labels and like have like a lot of autonomy and a lot and a lot of it, and I'm always like that's not really true. And that hasn't really ever been true of like artists own labels and things most of the time in the West, but it's because there were these big three, not the big thing, but there were big, there were major labels that have been pretty dominant since at least like the sixties. And that has been pretty like unwavering since then. Whereas obviously in the history you're just giving, it's like, no, there was actually sort of a, there was sort of a, new a, a newer starting point at a much more recent date for a lot of these things yeah and i mean the guys that are in charge well see this is where the like and no part comes in because of the three the of the three big three um jyp is really the only one who's still doing that kind of day-to-day qc like mm. what's coming out <laughs> and there was some rumor going around earlier i guess last year that he was really digging his heels in on um, sort of the way that this like tech trend and, and, and all of this stuff is trending. Like he, you know, JYP, I mean, he's an old school performer. Like he, he wants to be on stage. I mean, he really wants to be on stage, but he wants to have his groups on stage and performing and making music. Like he's the holdout. And um, I mean, YG, they're, Young Hyung Suk, who was the founder president, um, was kind of pushed out for <laughs> various reasons that I won't go into. But um, that, you know, I mean, for whatever he did, one thing that you could say for, for him is that he had an ear for a hit. And while he himself was not like a great performer, he he really did have that like because, he you know, he'd been on stage. He was a dancer. Um, He had just an ear for a hit. And there are things that have come out of YG in the last like year or so, year or two years since he, since he was pushed out that I'm like, wow, (laughs) YG would never have let a song like, like La Lisa out the door. Like, no way. Like, you know, so, I mean, the fact that these guys, I mean, they, they still did wield an incredible amount of power, but then... Yeah, like as things have gotten more globalized and monetized, I think they're really getting kind of pushed out the door. 
and I and I and so yeah. So I guess not. To, yeah, don't need to like stay like stay all the way stay all the way back in the nineties. But I, I especially when I'm sort of reading about some of the stuff, I just found it. I, I just found it very like very helpful to sort of get a little bit more of that context. And I think you're and you're right that like the development of uh, of this market is is just pretty different than especially what I'm more familiar with of the U.S. and even like Japan. Those it just it just it just is a bit it just is a bit different. And also I think that's sort of the thing that like. I kind of find so also interesting is sort of the interweaving of music and tech because again in the U.S. music and tech are often put at weird diametrical odds sometimes as if like the music is on one side and the tech is on the other but that's never really been true that's like not really but it's like sometimes it's a weird um bifurcation and I don't know if that has to do with like just generationally that like at a certain point you had a lot of like rockers in like the nineties and late and early aughts who just didn't really get the internet and things like that, that it created this sort of divide or similar when like the CD came about, like certain folk just were used to vinyl and then didn't like it. But I feel like there's always been this sort of like cultural divide that exists between those two where it's all, whereas you were sort of describing, it's like that didn't, I know that didn't exist, but it's like, maybe not quite as sharp as like as like a perceived division and i will say like even as i'm saying it's like even in the west i think that division is kind of a little bit fake or like isn't as exacting as i think some people like like it to be yeah i I think part of that is probably cultural because i've definitely talked about this um i think i i think it's i have a post somewhere on it i think but you know korea and koreans are generally you know they're they're not as married to this sort of nostalgic um you know the retro like the they don't have all the old vinyls and I mean they they do they're starting to get a bit of that now but in the past it's like you know you just threw out like you were done with a record okay well I'm just gonna throw this out and get a new Mm -hmm. one and so I think that sort of cultural sort of desire to just like oh we'll get rid of this old thing We'll, well we'll get the new thing um and so when the CD market collapsed, it wasn't like, oh, well, you know, what are we going to do with all these CDs? It's like, oh, well, SK put Melon on my phone. Okay, well, I can just listen to my trot music. Like, <laughs> like <on that. laughs> you know, it, there wasn't this like nostalgia for like the old CDs and the old um, records. And I think it's episode 25. I talked with Matt, who's a blogger who lives in Seoul. And he was saying that, you know, you go like there are cd stores in korea but they're there to sell k-pop cds to fans you know you walk into a korean cd store and what you see is bts you know there's no equivalent of like the the beatles or rolling stones or whatever like you're not gonna find that kind of stuff not even like michael jackson or madonna from you know you're not even gonna find 80s music or 90s music it's just whatever the new releases are yeah, yeah, I was going to say, and that's actually something that I feel like that's the direction that's currently happening right now in the West, because I think there has been recently a dis- smidge of discussion around CDs again, because CD sales went up last year after, I mean, they were still like second worst like CD sales ever, I think second or third worst ever like CD sales, but they did go up in 2021 compared to 2020. And most of that was just based off of the sales of, um, Adele and um like Taylor Swift like I think both of them like accounted for like maybe like five percent total something of like CD sales like in the United States last year and 
it seems like that's like an, and also I remember like Olivia Rodrigo put out like a cassette in the UK that did really, really, really well. And it seems like to me, this is again, where it's like following trends, like where the Western market is now catering these like formats to the big pop acts and trying to get people to like buy into those formats there versus yeah compared to yeah what you just sort of said there going to the store and it just being bts like i could totally imagine the taylor swift store experience and that's really the only thing being sold there yeah because what you're buying it's a piece of merch essentially yeah you know you're not buying a record to listen to you're going to just stream it um or not even listen to it at all um you know you're just that you just have a piece of merch now with the photo card and um, the photo book and uh, you know one of the big differences that I, I try to explain like the difference between the k-pop market um, and the j-pop market is you know when you buy a Japanese CD from like a big pop group they may have like three versions but each of those three versions will have different content you know they'll have one may have like more songs one may have like a DVD with special features you know in k-pop if there are three versions, it's going to be the same CD in each one, <laughs> but the photo book will be different and you'll get like a different photo card. Like that's, you know, that's the difference. You're, the K-pop CDs, you're not expected to actually listen to those. Because, yeah, I think at a certain point, yeah, American labels definitely were more towards how the Japanese market was at one point. But definitely the last few years has shifted way more towards the towards what you just described of Korea, where, like, you have multiple versions, but there isn't really, like, a solid difference between them. Yeah. It's, um, I've been recently watching a lot of Pokemon YouTubers where they complain <laughs> about that. They just, like, are very annoyed that there are still two versions of the same game, which, like... I understand. It's like a very annoying thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I mean, again, that goes back to this idea that um, it really was like around like 2010, 2011, 2012, where the K-pop industry and because it is, you know, it is a pretty united industry. I mean, there are a lot of sort of co-owned pieces of it um, and a lot of subsidiaries of of bigger companies. Um and and there was this idea that like okay well clearly we can't make music from just selling music so we need to come up with other ways to make money from it and a lot of it you know that's where we see the development of these sort of gated fan apps where you sort of corral 
all the fans onto like, well, there's like the voting gamified apps and you have now these new platforms like Weverse. Um, yes. You have the sort of tie ups with webtoons and comics um, where you have the idols sort of written as fictional characters and these webtoons, these ongoing web series. Um, and, you know, now I think SM announced like they're going to have like some metaverse thing. I mean, it's just all very just light years, <laughs> light years ahead of the West. But, yeah. Yeah. And I think Hybe actually, you know, I like to, to, to joke around that like the BTS paved the way is nonsense in sort of any artistic way. But, <laughs> you know, one of the things that Hybe and Big Hit actually really, I think, did pave the way for was this current trend of, of like, content, like non-music content being the sort of main product. Because one of the things I kind of uncovered when I was digging around for this episode was that in 2006, this was Hybes or Big Hits. Yeah. First, um, this was like Bang, you know, Bang She Hook, his first big project as his own company, right? And what it was, was he called it a multimedia web novel. And it was, yeah, he got, yeah, right? It's been totally wiped from the internet. So it was called Syndrome, and he'd gotten um, sort of a popular web novelist to write this story based on like okay they like it was it was really strange he had like these brand new trainees that their images were used and the idea was that like they were going to be in in sort of the spin-off um drama or movie if it happened and he also got this trainee called G soul who ended up he ended up going to America he performed at the Apollo theater actually which oh. is like in a weird like like sidebar and then he comes back to Korea and I think officially debuts in like 2015 but back in 2006 he was just like a kid but yeah he like sang on the um the like the soundtrack associated with the web novel so it was like this whole thing of like all these moving pieces you had the soundtrack you had the serialized web novel you had the um illustrations based on the real actors that were supposed to be in the movie version and it you know all of this was being fed across i think three or four of the most popular platforms right so it was on like all of your apps and um it completely flopped (laughs) it flopped so hard like everyone hated it the the novelist like it totally ruined her career like g soul yeah like he ended up having to go to america um yeah um but the vision was there the vision was there what you're sort of saying about sort of how this how a lot of this does sort of go back like probably like 10 or 15 years that like a lot of the roots sort of like go back to that i'm a, I, I guess it's more of this another question it's like i'm like a little curious of what was i guess it's maybe more of like a musical one it's like because i i feel like as someone that like gets really into the biz side of music i sometimes try to like connect to what is actually happening on the music side because i sometimes forget to do that and it's like sometimes very illuminating, but what was happening around this period? Because just for context, like this is basically when I became aware of K-pop 
and all of this stuff because it was this moment where at least online, especially being in pop pan, suddenly there is all these like nerds who are like, have you heard of like Korean pop music? It's like American pop music, but cooler and more fun. And I was like, oh, well, this sounds like cool. And it's interesting now hearing you sort of say that this is also sort of where like the on the business side that it was like a lot of this was starting to congeal then. So was that sort of overlapping where all of a sudden it was starting to break a little bit more into Western markets? So it hit someone like me in like North Carolina. And also the business was also starting to figure out what it wants, what it also wants to sort of reshape itself into. Yeah. So I think what happened around that time was actually you had like the Korean company is really trying to break in Japan. I think a lot of that musical influence really is sort of as part of a feedback loop, like what was happening in like Japanese pop music. That makes sense. You know, and but I think that at the time that they kind of broke into America, would have been sort of feeding back from that success in Japan. So if you take a group like Big Bang, who really broke big here in like 2011. Right. <laughs> Sorry, but, this is now connecting. This is yeah, connecting some dots here. But this makes a lot of sense now that I'm starting to think of this. Yeah, because before they kind of popped up with um, Alive, they had had a lot of big success in Japan. But, um, but that, you know, I think that kind of feeds back into what they were doing. Um, but, but I also think that it, at this time, there was a lot of overlap with the domestic Korean pop market as well. So I think that you're getting those two kind of influences there. Um, and because JYP, to go back to him, you know, musically, he was the one that was really so focused on the American market, but... You know, that, that kind of stuff that came out of that era, not all that great. Well, with the exception of 2 p.m. I really like 2 p.m., but um, yeah, I think that there's stuff that ended up popping bigger in Japan, like later, really fed more into to 
kind of their success in the West too. It was like an echo. Like we got like the feedback loop. That actually makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Also, I feel like, in, 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 and I know you've already probably, I know you've talked about this previously, but it's like also in the kind of like online spaces I was like following, J-pop was like also another really big hype thing amongst like the kind of music, like pop fans at that moment. And it was kind of like, oh, when is, I could, and I could be misremembering this or I could probably go back and find my old writing. No, it's it. because but, it was oh. all like Kodakumi. Yes. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I think that there was an assumption that, like, Japanese pop would break in America, and then that would kind of be the big thing. But also there's Korean pop also happening. So it kind of felt like, again, that there was these, like, really big emergent scenes that were just about to, like, arrive in the United States. And that this is also paralleling this sort of, like, as you were saying earlier, this sort of attempt on behalf of these sort of Korean companies to try to like assert a little bit more power like yeah. hey i think like hey we think we can actually sort of make a name for ourselves in this context and it's like emerging more global context that actually makes a lot of sense because like there may have been like sort of this perception of like oh we're like almost there like we can maybe like break through at this exact moment right because this comes after um or yeah, like the first like successful like SM Town concert um in LA, which yeah. is like a big thing. But then what happens? Yeah, like they didn't have the power, <laughs> so yeah. it was CJ E and M, who, by the way, is the company behind Parasite. That is like the product of like twenty five years of investment in the um, American market, and so CJ E and M is the company that does KCON. And so, and you know, SM Town kind of fades, and what pops up is KCON, yeah. which is yeah, yeah, which is kind of a loss leader for um, their groups. Um, so yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it is interesting, but I think again, Big Hit paving the way. You know, I, I think that that Big Hit has this. Um, I think he's the CEO now. This guy Lenzo Yoon, who's actually an architect. Um, who kind of found his way into the music business, but I think he's been pretty instrumental in really pointing this direction towards, um, you know, away from focusing on music and really towards building this, like, content factory. Yeah, and I think this is something that, like, I, I'm, and, I and this is where something, when I was trying to write about this last year, I feel like it's a, a big blind spot because I just didn't have the time and I just didn't have the full understanding was sort of the secondary nature of music within all of this. Yeah. If that makes sense. Cause no, like, yeah. I, because like, because like, from my point of view is I was like, I thought it was like really odd that like LVMH had like invested into YG. And it was like really weird. Cause like, oh, I'm sorry. Like LVMH is like the big luxury brand. They're like basically the people that, I mean, the guy behind LVMH, I'm forgetting his um, last name. Um, but he's like basically the person that like runs France. I mean, they don't want us to say that, but like he basically <laughs> runs France. Um, but like they were in, like they were trying to get into this. There were other like sort of like smaller private equity firms that were sort of like sort of eyeing the space. And it like seems odd to me. Like initially when I was reading, it's just like, oh, it seems kind of odd that they were sort of eyeing this. But now that I sort of think about it, it does kind of make sense that like again, some of these more Western firms are starting to look all of a sudden to, towards South Korea after this sort of moment where like they weren't fully able to sort of break through in the way they did. There is obviously gang, like Gangnam Style that was like very popular and definitely like caught a lot of attention for folks over here. It was like, 
oh, okay, now it kind of starts making sense to me that like this is sort of where in the mid 2010s there starts being more investment, more purchases of smaller labels, and like things sort of start congealing a bit more starting like like a, a little bit after this exactly yeah all of this stuff starts to get rolled up and so you have like the two big um like web companies i guess in um uh, cacao and neighbor you know also start to like get involved and um you know these companies they're all like they're all vertically integrated and like a like cacao i think they've got like a cacao pay and like they've got yeah you know they've got all of this stuff so but they also have you know the big streaming platform and you know and so you can make all these like purchases and then oh last year too there was a i mean this is how much power these companies have last year there was um a decision that you know that apps in like the apple um and i guess android um app stores don't have to use like apple pay like yeah. they can use right and so yeah like that's how much power these companies have um and again it's all because korea invested so early in like this telecom stuff and like in data and in the internet and a lot of it does date back to the fact that you have this, you had this kind of blank slate and they just built up this, you know, this huge internet presence on it. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I remember looking at, like, sort of the revenue, like, music revenue for in South Korea, like, over the last, like, 20, 25 years. And it was always really, and I was contrasting it to, like, sort of the UK and the United States. And it was really funny to me because, like, the recession that hit, like, so the CD burst, the CD boot, like, the CD bubble burst of, like, the late 90s and the early odds is one that I... I guess I don't want to get I don't need to go too too history on this at least on the western side because like I think that like the idea of the CD bu- bubble bursting in the 90s is also a little bit weird well, because a link oh. to your appearance on Money for Nothing where you talk well, about yes that. this leads to <laughs> because like I'll, I'll just be very brief but it's just that like the CD bubble burst like there's a book I read over the holidays that was about like the history of Warner Music and there's like so many quotes from executives basically in the early 90s being like oh, wait a minute, CD sales are starting to stagnate. Like, we already kind of are seeing this, like, 
momentary 80s bubble, like already starting to slow down. Because at that point, they couldn't keep reselling things. I mean, they kept reselling, and they still do keep reselling the same stuff to people. Oh, yeah. Every holiday well, season. now they're selling it back to us on vinyl. We got yeah. rid of our vinyl. We bought it on CD. We got rid of our CDs, and then we're buying it back on vinyl. But like that initial like burst of the combination of having like a Michael Jackson's newest album come out and then you also rebuying the Beatles catalog, that only hit once for the Western record industry. So like by like the mid 90s, they were already kind of feeling like the burn of like, we can't really do this again. And we're already kind of starting to eye and getting a little bit desperate for things. But what's interesting to me and to your point about the the heavy investment into the internet in South Korea is that there the dip is happens, but it isn't quite as like, I don't say it's not dramatic, but it's like, I don't, I didn't, at least when reading, I didn't get the same existential fear that you get when reading American press around this time period. Like the amount of like anxiety and the amount of just sort of like, is music going to exist kind of vibe? I don't really get, I never got that when, when trying to read up on this with South, with South Korea in the arts. Yeah, I mean, I think because the internet had already become such a presence in people's lives, because, you know, you have these, um, PC, they're called PC bongs, but these, um, I mean, like essentially internet cafes, but had become a staple of kind of public life um, after the 1997 um, economic crisis. Um, you had all of these sort of PC rooms pop up. Yeah. And, and people in there, you had, um, oh, was it Psy World, which was kind of like a proto, I mean, it, it kind of like a Facebook almost, but oh. years before Facebook, like this was 1999, right? So you had social networking already start up and you had these internet streaming, like internet radio um, show up like bugs in 2000 um and you know so i think people were already more primed to like well i'll just you know i don't have a job but <laughs> i could still go and like listen to like bugs while i you know game or whatever um and take my mind off things for a few hours um and so i think that that probably has a lot to do with it like there was already this kind of model starting to come into place where your music already, it didn't exist in a CD for you. It was yeah. just on the radio or it was on the computer anyway. It wasn't on that little piece of plastic. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. And I think to go back to a little bit back, a little bit more forward in time as to where we were just speaking, I think that's probably makes sense as to why, like, yeah, by the twenty mid 2010s, you start seeing the sort of roll up of these smaller, of these sort of smaller companies. Yeah. Also, as there ends up being more money, more investment sort of flowing in from, yeah, LVMH or like a Tenzin. It's like all of a sudden the like the global, like global capital and, and entertainment capital, I guess also is the other thing I kind of wanted to like make clear on this. It's like Tenzin, obviously the big Chinese firm has Tenzin music, but obviously has like bunch of other things in the world of entertainment lvmh is is luxury is luxury brand so it isn't like it wasn't like music it wasn't like i mean obviously i know like the like the um american majors have like their own sort of like space but it isn't like universal music group was investing a hundred million dollars or something and trying to buy up one of these companies yeah and the other piece of this that we haven't mentioned is gaming and so you have ncsoft you have Netmarble. Well, I guess NCSoft. So NCSoft just, well, Netmarble, 
entered, um, I mean, Netmarble was swallowed up by CJ Group. And Netmarble has been working with Hybe because the <laughs> the two CEOs are um, cousins. And, um, you know, again, it's all about connections. It's yeah. all about connections. Um, but anyway, like, you know, they, they've been working together, um, you know, putting out the BTS game. And, um, you know, you have the Weverse platform. And then um, you had NCSoft just enter into the K-pop market with an app called Universe last year. Um, again, which is one of these, like, I mean, I guess, I don't know, maybe the best way to explain sort of the Weverse universe is, it's kind of like the Renner app, but <laughs> like, instead of just Jeremy Renner, you're getting like, you know, a whole stable of K-pop stars that will, <laughs> you know, you can upvote their posts and like comment on them or whatever and talk to fans. Um, and then also, you know, buy stuff while you're here. Why not spend a little money? Um, so you have these game companies now getting into this very rich market with its fan base of very, very deep pockets. Red lip now, earrings now, high heel now, handbag now. Red lip now, earrings now, high heel now, handbag Actually, wait, you said fan base of deep pockets. Oh, um, yeah. I know, I know I've asked you about this before, off, like off, but I would love if you could just speak a little more on that. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, the fans? Gosh. K-pop fandom is, oh, I don't even know how to describe it. Um, well, because I think, I think a lot of it does come down to the fact that it, it is gamified now on this global level. I think in the past, you know, K-pop fandom did start off probably pretty similar to, to like closer to like what J-pop fandom is where you have, you know, your fan club and you go to the concerts and you buy the merch and you get a ticket and you'll buy a CD and whatever. But as fandom has become like globalized and I think as sort of these metrics have become really important within fandom all of these numbers have developed this meaning and so you have fans who were in the past you know if you were a fan in Seoul you might go to the show you might <laughs> depending on the fan you might stalk your favorite to his dorm or whatever but 
Um, it was all very local. It was all on a very local level. But now you have fans competing to be the Billboard charts. You have them, um, you know, you have fans all around the world fighting over like Music Bank. And I think it's just this, whatever that trigger is in people's heads, it just like switches off and they're like, okay, I need to buy 200 copies of this CD <laughs> like <laughs> to make sure that my favorite gets to the top of the chart. And, you know, they'll do it. They'll buy 200 CDs. Um, they may never listen to it, but, you know, they buy it. They may never open them, but they buy them. Yeah. I mean, I mean, that's also, I guess that is also something that I, that like, I, that's like, sorry, I guess like, that's like something that like the more I like sort of like have tried to like sort of under, I guess it's like as a fan, I find like that mindset is like one that I don't really quite like really fully understand. Yeah. But as I've like, but as we've talked about like, like previously before, like I feel like I've like gotten a little bit better. And that's why I just wanted to ask because like I feel like I've gotten a little bit better understanding that it's like this is in many ways not like organic fan behavior, if that makes sense. It's like, no, it's, it, well, yeah it's kind of like i don't know as as just someone who's been around these fan spaces a long long time i've just i've witnessed this and i've seen people struggle you know rational otherwise very rational people really struggle with with this thing because these companies they're very smart you know they're very very smart and they know fans um they've studied us <laughs> you know for a long time <laughs> And so they know how to do things like trigger the completest, right? And so I think maybe the closest you'd find is like, or a closer, uh, like a closer comparison would be like comic book fans yeah, versus like music fans in the West, maybe like comic book fans, um, like old school comic book fans, because, you know, you have these groups with like 13 members and they'll put out a CD with like, five versions or whatever but you have that completest switch and and people will like be very desperate to get every photo card in every cd and i think i want to say that there are some countries probably in europe where this has been outlawed and they have to they they don't include they they aren't allowed to include the cards in the cd because this is so manipulative <laughs> Um, I, th- I want to say it's the UK, actually. That would not, I could be wrong. I could be wrong. I'm going to say that, like, sounds very, like, that sounds like a very good European, like, thing to do of, like, oh, we don't, we, we see that this could be potentially be a problem. <laughs> that yeah. seems like a pretty good thing to eye early and, on. Yeah, and I mean, there are, there are certainly, you know, viral social media posts um, where, like, you know, fans will go to a Target or whatever and they get the album and it's already been, like, the plastic's been sliced open and the card's been taken out. <laughs> like, you know, and like this is, I mean, it seems silly, but it's it's a real thing and it drives real CD sales. Um, so, you know, you'll see like people with, um, you know, all over the world, it could be the Philippines, it could be mm. Japan, it could be Iowa with stacks and stacks of, of all identical CDs. And they do it because that completest like switch has been flipped in their brain and they're like oh i need every single photo card of all 
13 members of all like of all the versions like i don't quite hold that completest like brain but i do know that like my dad was like a comics fan when he i mean well i say was he is he's still a big comics nerd but he's like but like he's been a person that the marvel series has been like a very like rewarding thing for him because he's like been a fan of the comics since like the late 60s um so it's like oh cool daredevil it's on netflix i loved daredevil since i was 10 and i'm like oh that's cool for you in a way that it doesn't really mean anything for me because you have yeah. 40 plus years of like <laughs> fan attachment to this that like is I, that i think it's like something that i feel like is sometimes understated with some of the marvel stuff or maybe just so implicit that people just don't talk about it as much but there Mm -hmm. is like a lot of sort of like pulling like the uh, yeah i guess it's when people talk about marvel being sort of our um like myth myth and stuff kind of like that i guess that's kind of what people are sort of getting at but i i I guess to sort of like go and i guess sorry i feel like i'm like just like doing like an interview where i'm just asking questions no no it's fine but like one thing that i was i I, because there are a couple like more like contemporary things to where we sort of like how the sort of the industry is sort of set up now that I want to get to. But one thing I did also before I want to get there, one thing I wanted to ask was how as a fan, and especially I guess it's more as a fan and as like someone who's been in this space for a minute, how over did it do you did did you feel the like sort of like congealing of this industry over time. Have you felt that like things have sort of changed in that way? Because I think like from like, as like my sense as a music fan, I feel like, cause I'm 29, my most of my concept of like labels in the big space is they're indistinguishable. They don't really mean a lot. You have to get to smaller sub communities for labels to mean things. And so I'm curious if labels have like, change in their sort of role or if it's been fairly steady over the years hmm that's a good question um i think yeah i'm i don't know it's it's hard to say actually because i think as a foreign fan so much of what we experience at least in those earlier years was all kind of you know under the like under the table (laughs) so you know because so we you know especially like back in like 2007 2008 2009 like you know if you were watching music bank you either had to like subscribe to like a cable channel or whatever or i mean i guess like you couldn't really live stream things like all of that has really come within the last few years i think we're international fans could really participate at the same level Mm. that's all been in like the last like five years i think wow okay yeah but as far as like the labels go gosh i mean i i would say i think i'm definitely you definitely felt the arrival of big money like around that same like 2012 era Mm. and i think just watching the artists you definitely got a sense of things changing as they as the industry kind of decoupled from the domestic korean industry Mm. you definitely felt that but again i think it comes down to the fact that you know at the end of the day like you know the the talent agencies and the product that they put out that has remained distinct more or less 
but behind the scenes, you know, you've really only had, let's see, it's really, I mean, it's, it's CJ, E&M, it's, yeah, you've got like SK, you've got, um, the KTLG partnership. Yeah. You know, they're, but they're, they're money people, like they're not necessarily interfering with what the product is as long as it sells i don't think they care all that much what you're putting out mm. does that make sense no that ma- no that makes no that, that makes sense and i think i guess part of the reason why i'm asking and now is i'm actually sort of thinking through this like again what i said earlier in the show about sort of the western mindset of labels being yeah. probably overwhelming I think even in my question asking i'm still thinking in the western label mindset because like I think so strongly of like label being like the er, like the beginning and end of all these things. Yeah. And I also have a slightly more cantankerous sort of view that people put a lot of weight onto the streaming platform as being the arbiters of a lot of context for music now that in many ways I still want to throw back on labels, much less so than like a Spotify. Like I always feel much more like, the aesthetic of like the weekend and all of that is much like I'm just using as an example, but like yeah. the weekend aesthetic feels much more uniform of Universal Music Group than it is of the streaming Spotify Apple Music era or, any, or anything. And so I think, and but I think to what you're sort of getting at is that like maybe that mindset of me is like not actually super applicable in this context because it is just kind of a different way that these this industry is forming and in right now actually like still percolating and still like making new forms of itself right now yeah i mean i think you definitely can apply some like artistic you know meaning to like an sm group Mm -hmm. um versus a jyp group um they're very they're going to be very aesthetically different they're going to sound different they're going to have different um just different ways that promotions are done different ways that songs are rolled out um yg interestingly enough has really and and this could change if fingers crossed big bang comes back but um with the departure of yg himself um has really kind of (laughs) like their sound has become sort of less distinct mm. um, and the imagery kind of become, I don't know, they've kind of lost their way, I think. Um, but then you have like these other kind of like Warner actually does have a presence in Korea. They have their, yeah. Um, and I don't think they have like a house style or anything, but, um, and you have like these smaller kind of talent agencies but again, like you, you know, they're all distributed by like the same like big telecom companies. So, yeah. you know, at the end of the day, you know, I think the, I think fans probably rightfully put more meaning on the, the talent agency. That makes a, okay. That actually does, that yeah. actually does make a lot of sense. And I think, and I think actually per what I, what I was sort of thinking about, and I guess I, I will sort of say, if you read my, if you read my writing or, or anything, or if you do get a chance to my writing, I'm still thinking through a lot of these questions in a way because i think that there's a lot of stuff with how people talk about music and think about music especially on the business side that's like pretty underdeveloped and not like super like considerate and i guess the reason i I, an example of this is i I was thinking of it was like lil nas x is on um columbia 
which is Sony. And part of me like thought, and I was like, oh, that makes sense that Lil Nas X is on Columbia, like, and is on Sony because Sony is the act that has like Bruce Springsteen, Adele, um, Bob Dylan, Beyonce. Like they like are like in some ways like are like on a tour-ish kind of label, even though I don't really think that, I don't know if that's like how folks ever think about Sony products on the music side, but like that is the kind of artist they kind of lean to at the big scale. But like, that's something that I don't really think that, and like The weekend is UMG, that's also like Billie Eilish, Drake, like the biggest names of the world have, and like Post Malone, this kind of like overwhelming, like you can't escape it even if you wanted to kind of sense of artists is very UMG to me. But I, I guess I say this because it's like not fully fleshed out of a theory. It's just something I've been trying to like tease out a little bit more and trying to sort of see if that also like has any sort of relevance or sort of like stay in this combo as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you can definitely, in a, at least in a K-pop context, put a lot of meaning onto the talent agencies. Yeah. Um, and, and I think it does also because they were formed so recently, they do have a lot of the personality of the founder still in them, you know? Yeah. Um, at least, at least the, the, the ones that are still kind of like, well, yeah, like the big three, but, um, Hybe also, I think you can fit in there. Um, although <laughs> the Hybe sound, I mean, I don't want to just rag on the Hybe sound, but the Hybe sound is not good. Yeah, I don't know what they're doing over there, but it is not good. No, no. The not, vo- not the vo- like whatever they're doing with vocals, it's really bizarre. Have you heard any like Hybe songs? Because all it's it's all of their boy groups sound like this. It's really weird. I'm going to say I've heard like a few I haven't like gone like super deep but I think it's also because like what I've listened to I was like I don't particularly like this <laughs> and I was like I also like probably had probably less time on my hands to go yeah, to music yeah. I don't actively like enjoy yeah <laughs> and then also as we've talked about before it's like the direction yeah like the direction the la- yeah it's just oh I don't really want to engage too, too much with no, it but no, it is it- a thing and it's definitely like a thing and it per this combo is certainly like very relevant and very like having it making big impacts obviously yeah it's definitely like a house style whatever <laughs> like i don't know who that house style is for but it's there um yeah and then like a um like the sm has their own kind of house style like they've been working with them joints do you love me do you love me now baby tell me now which is uh, kind of interesting and um Taman, who's one of my favorite kind of k-pop soloists he had a big hit well, I consider it a big hit, big hit in my world, with the songwriters behind WAP, which was this song called Idea.
which was really really good so they're kind of pulling like from that like american like you know i guess what you call it like urban sound yeah yeah and then jyp um has been doing really great things actually with his girl groups um especially in japan he has got that like j-pop sound down it's great Yeah. So one of the, I, I guess like one of the things that like, I guess one of the things that was like sort of interesting to me, or I guess like something I've been like still trying to understand a little bit more is that as you were sort of saying earlier, there is like the what like what like the West and sort of music is sort of like still catching up a lot. But one of the things that I think you were getting about about this with sort of the hype sort of like early 06 sort of like trial run that didn't quite work yeah. was that like, oh, this also sounds a lot like what NFTs and a lot of the sort of like stuff that's sort of percolating there, which hasn't quite like fully like bloomed yet, but seems like it's like just right on the edges of stuff that like people may be interested in or maybe not. I'd actually, I'm not really quite, I'm quite, I'm not quite, sh- quite sure uh, on that, but it seems like there's so much hype, especially right where I'm, and where my circles around this stuff that I'm like, Oh, this seems really hype, but also to your point, doesn't really seem all that much more unique or interesting than like stuff that already exists within a lot of these fandoms and communities. Every time I fear call it like artist indirect involvement like products <laughs> <laughs> wow oh. so i mean technically like you're selling like a likeness or um you know an image or an association but the artist doesn't have all that much to do with it and so yeah so like you're i mean just because of my own interests i've been kind of following um i guess you'd call it like the the ipification of some of these idols themselves and you know turning them into video game characters and um characters in dramas and in like comic books and um one of the things that universe that app 
did, and they got a lot of pushback for this, was um, have like turn turn some of these idols into like dating game characters and so they yeah and so you could like make a call and get like a hey girl and um fans you know weren't all like they didn't like it um i mean again it just could be too early and maybe you know in 20 years from now would be like oh yeah of course but one of the things that i i also saw when i was looking up um, news for this episode was that um, Hybe has recently invested in a voice AI company. So, you know, do with that what you will. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> like, I think I think it's, you know, a lot of this artist indirect involvement um, is really the way that things are trending. Yeah, I, that's something that on like the podcast um, Interdependence, which is like done by like two musicians like Matt Dryhurst and Holly Herndon, they always talk about like music AI and voices AI stuff where they're like, it's going to be here faster than you know, and it's going to be wild. And I'm always kind of like, I, guess I, I don't know if I'm skeptical, but I guess I feel like I've had the reaction of those fans where it's like, oh, I don't think I actually really want yeah. this stuff. But I mean, again, like they, I feel like it's one of those things where they're going to keep pushing it until we just give up and accept it. Like the holograms. <laughs> I mean, I feel like those holograms of like the dead singers and stuff are so offensive in like every way possible. But then look what happened. Look, like, look what ABBA did when they came back. Like they didn't come back as like ABBA of today. They had like the weird... AI generated like old ABBA. It was. Did you watch that? The no, I did not watch you, that. Do you know what I'm talking about, though? No, I know what you're talking about, but like that, it's uncanny, and it, it made me so uncomfortable. I'm like, you know, maybe I'm just too old for this, but I'm like, I'd rather see like 70 or something like ABBA than this bizarre like concoction. Yeah, I. I, I, I guess that's honestly like one of those things where I have a really hard, hard time sort of getting a sense of like if that'll ever if how that'll play out. But I also mm-hmm. I guess to be increasingly honest, I am kind of like I feel like not that I would not only that I would just sort of aid out of that as like the target demo, but I would also like increasingly feel like it's like oh at some point I'm just gonna like age out of where like the artist that I well. You mentioned ABBA, so I guess that is actually disconcerting because, like, ABBA really is for everyone. So, like, if they can do it, then anyone can do it. Um, but I would hope that, like, well, no, actually, I, I, I'm going to counteract what I just said because they actually really are. It is actually for everyone. The whole point of most of the hologram yeah. is to get the artists that have that kind of broader appeal. So, it, like, because otherwise you can't invest that much money into like a niche artist or something like that because it just wouldn't have a return. And also to be very honest, I feel like if there was like a niche artist or community that was into it, I don't know. I don't I, I think that there'd probably be less revulsion to it because it would probably be like, oh, well, that small cluster of fans wanted this weird product. Yeah, you don't really, they, they have it for themselves and it doesn't quite have sort of the same like sort of um potential like moral questions of like, well, everyone knows ABBA. Everyone loves ABBA. So having this weird ABBA-like existence is like kind of a weird gray zone that that many people probably aren't going to be jive as much with versus the fans, who, like versus certain fans who may like it. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have like the Vocaloid community already. Yeah. Who are very, you know, already doing this. But yeah, I guess you're right. Like, I feel like ABBA is pro- is for people that aren't music fans. They just, you know 
they just know ABBA like ABBA's like ABBA's brand has like surpassed like the music scene I guess yeah also yeah. you mentioned you also mentioned Vocaloid and yeah I guess that's also that that kind of like in some ways yeah that's actually already like a good example of it but I guess that also sort of shows that there is like there needs to be some like kind of slightly more like there needs to be something there at least community wise I guess like I just keep thinking back to when I had like the Tupac hologram and oh like God. some of that yeah. stuff where it was like oh no one actually really wants this no but they're gonna keep pushing it on us they really yeah. are because that's because they I mean you know not to be like super cynical but I think if you're a money person it's way easier to have like a hologram with an existing back catalog and some brand recognition than be dealing with a real life person who you can't control who may you know have a scandal who may um ruin their voice who may want to do stuff that you don't like um yeah you like why wouldn't you just go with the hologram yeah also and uh, but i guess that's the point i guess that's like sort of the one thing where the fan reaction i guess we've i, I mentioned nfts earlier but like that's where the fan reaction around stuff like that it, like hostile fan reaction yeah. actually <laughs> has like a very it's actually been very funny and i guess it's sorry it's getting a little feel but like one yeah. of the things that has been interesting to me is like reading hostile fan reaction because it's someone that's like been online since i was six whatever I'm, like, so used to fan reaction and negative fan reaction being perceived as sort of, like, bad. And I also grew up, like, within gaming. And so I remember, like, Gamergate and, like, other versions of that, that well-dated Gamergate of just, like, really hostile fan and in-group reactions to things that, like, most people look at from the outside and say that's really repulsive and bad. But it's been really interesting seeing, like, this sort of similar kind of, like, knee-jerk reaction against like either nfts or some crypto stuff or just some like newer technology and holograms too where it's like this sort of similar like oh i really don't like this and like not only do i not like this i'm gonna like tell someone i don't like this and actually i'm gonna get my friends to also like tweet at this person and maybe email the company and like doing the kind of fan mob mentality against something rather than for something and i like have found that really, I don't know if it's, it's, it's interesting. It's something I've like been trying to better understand a little bit of like how this has sparked such harsh, like immediate like reaction from people. And it may be that a lot of these fans and fan groups already are sort of like well-organized. So they're just using that muscle in this kind of way. But it has been interesting to me because I feel like I'm used to like new technologies emerging and people sort of like adopting them and sort of being like, not as like, repulsed or is like sort of put or off put by them if that makes sense you know it, it does make sense and yeah as someone who's been online a long time you know i guess the fan pushback i mean it can be you know it can be written out and you know companies can just ignore it and just do what they want anyway um and i think that that does happen you know a lot of a lot of times yeah yeah I, <laughs> so you're, be, you're right you know it'll be interesting to see um if this pushback from fans is long enough and sustained enough to kind of ride out the you know what i guess would be like a big money-making thing in theory in theory but that's also the thing i guess that's also kind of why i find it odd is because it's not it's not like people are like 
we don't want, like, it's not like gamers are like, I don't want to give you money for your product. I just don't want to give you money in this context. Yeah. It's like really <laughs> odd. And I, and I, I mean, I guess it's actually honestly not too dissimilar from some like the hologram stuff where it's like, yeah. it's not that I don't want to enjoy the music. It's just, I don't want it in this form you're giving me. But you know, what's, what's interesting now that I'm like thinking about this and tying it back to some of the stuff about like photo cards, because I'm remembering now um, like tweets from fans and stuff talking about like, well, why do I want a picture on my phone? Like why do like, it's essentially like a photo card on your phone or whatever. Yeah. Some of these NFTs, you know, why do I need that? I have my photo card right here in my hand, but you know, fans will pay for digital things all the time. You don't own it. Not like physically, but it's, yeah. Like, I guess, you know, like sort of this in-game payments and you know buying like different stuff for like your sim characters or whatever um i mean there is you know people do do that so i mean it's really it is only a step from there to like the nft i guess it's just sort of getting the rollout was not <laughs> like the rollout was not uh uh not good left a lot to be desired but yeah, yeah. like you just have to get people over that hurdle like if you're selling nfts you have to get people over the hurdle of i'm gonna buy a new outfit for my, a digital outfit for my sim or like i'm gonna buy something in like the kim kardashian game or whatever like that in-game purchase get them from that to the nft like that that leap was not bridged no but also i think the other issue and now i'm and then we and then we can we can move from this but it's like yeah, i think the yeah. other thing i'm realizing is like it's not good for a fandom to have something really hard, like a hard line divisive issue within a fandom about like the basics of the fandom. Yeah. Like you can't introduce a, like a mode of like, of like artist interaction that is going to be the cheap one. If like 40% of the fans don't want it and they actively don't want it because then there's probably, I'm, I'm making up numbers, but then it's like, <laughs> there are probably like 15% of those people who are now like, well, three of my friends don't like this, but four of my friends like it. Ugh, I don't really want to have to make a choice here. I guess I'll just kind of like maybe just wait this out. And then all of a sudden it's sort of like, oh, well, now you're kind of like splitting. the. Yeah, I guess that's the thing. It's like you don't want fandoms to get like too. You shouldn't be thinking this much as a fan. Like yeah. there's a certain yeah. like, you, like I guess that's the, yeah, it's like fans shouldn't have to think this much like. You should think about how you're gaming the system. They want you to do that to get on the charts. They don't want you to have to sort of game out like, does my friend, will my friend like me if I get this product that's out there? Because it seems like they're going to not like me. But I don't want to know if that's like, yeah, you don't want to have fans thinking that hard. No, you want fans being your sort of unpaid mechanical Turks grinding through spreadsheets of MP3s, redeeming them. <laughs> like, yeah, you like don't, if you're, yeah. If you're a sort of, you know, music executive, that's, that is what you want. You want, that's, you know, you want to have that kind of fan buy-in on that level. Yeah, you don't want them to have to start asking, like, more social questions of the yeah. product yeah. that's yeah i guess that's probably where, yeah. the, where, where yeah. the line starts or ex draw. Ex existential like you don't want to you don't want them asking what the meaning of a digital um like thing really is because you want them buying those mp3s <laughs> yeah so i guess to, I, I i guess to like sort of like maybe like like maybe like wrap to like comes yeah. with a little bit of yeah, a wrap yeah, yeah. one yeah. of the things that like i think has been so 
And I want to say thank you for a- answering all my questions on, on, on the show because I feel like I've, like, learned a lot. Oh, good. I'm um, glad. And, and, cl- and I feel like I've also, like, clarified, like, a number of just sort of, like, parallel sort of, like, industry things because I, 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 don't, I don't know. It's like, it's like, as we've talked about previous, like, talked about amongst ourselves, it's, like, really hard to find basically any writing that summarizes what you've just talked about. <laughs> it's, like, really hard to get any succinct summaries of a lot of this stuff. There's so much mystification. There's so much mystification that goes on. And I think part of it is the received wisdom gets passed down. And so you get journalists or, you know, whoever, media people assigned to write about K-pop and they just kind of summarize what other people have written. But those people were summarizing something that somebody else wrote that, you know, and who knows where the origin of some of this like received wisdom actually is. But it's a lot of it is mystified just because I think people don't know what they're talking about. Totally. And I think that's kind of the thing that like it sort of became really clear to me when I was trying to read up on this stuff was like, oh, there's not really a clear history. And also to your point, it is kind of, and you've said this repeatedly on the show over the years, but it's like so jarring to me that like history basically began 10 years ago. Every time there's a new thing, it's like history can only go back a decade, even if it's like 2022. It's like, well, history started in 2012. Yeah, which is wild. Um, because if you if you sort of read any k-pop article written in the last like two years history basically started they'll go they'll go back to Soltaji and boys 1993 um i think it's 93 but then they leap to gundam style yeah like 15 years later and i'm like oh okay so i guess nothing happened <laughs> like and you know but they also bring Soltaji and boys out of nothing so it's it's just this very bizarre Korean music history that erases like absolutely everything like it's so weird yeah and then also and maybe this is my it's like it also even worse to go back to the very start of the show with talking about cacao that starts with bts because a number of those articles start k-pop in with bts actually so it's like actually (laughs) we only go back five years years. Which is crazy. I mean, I could do a whole episode just talking about the BTS, like, mythology that sprung up because it drives me crazy. There's, like, you know, the none of this is real. Like, none, almost nothing that you read in a K-pop article is real. It's There's so much kayfabe. I mean, it's like, sometimes I read these things and I'm, it's like reading about a professional wrestling match as if it was an Olympic wrestling match. I mean, it's that level of, of like fake news. Absolutely. Absolutely. Because I think that's definitely one of the things that it, it and that, I, that I think it's honestly one of the things I have, I've found very like helpful when trying to research and talking to you about this stuff is that there is a history that goes back more than 10 years, more than 30 years. And also to try to better understand who are the actual sort of players that are like vaguely making the decisions about a lot of these things. Because again, if you sort of are new to this stuff and you come to a story that starts in 2017, you really have almost, you're basically starting from like 
you're almost not learning in some kind of way. Like you said, it really is fake news. Yeah, you're not learning anything um, if you know nothing and history starts in 2017 because so much of this stuff, it really goes back to, I mean, yeah, like the the internet boom and um, even just, you know, Korea, Korean culture and just Korean society and how, you know, how they really did. Like, I mean, I think there's all these, if you go back to like, the early 2000s um, and sort of like Wired magazine and stuff, you find all these like glowing articles about like the Wired society. And, um, you know, it's, it's that history exists. Like even if some, you know, writer at like the Atlantic or whatever um, doesn't bother to, to go back that far. But I mean, I think that's an important piece of the puzzle if you want to actually understand K-pop. Yeah, I want to, well, this is, my, this is my last thing. I think that's also coming from, like, the gaming, which you were mentioning earlier. Yeah, that's something yeah. that gaming, at least I feel like gaming has, all, like, has had a slightly maybe more clear history of trying to understand, like, the history of sort of, like, at least, like, South Korean gaming a little bit more. Yeah, StarCraft and- was huge. That's 1998. I mean, StarCraft was massive. And because mm-hmm. this is, you know you have to also look at like the Japan media ban. So they didn't have Nintendo. They went right to PC gaming. Yes. (laughs) Yes. And that's something that like, as like someone that used to be much more big into gaming was always, a. and I also, I listened to a lot of gaming podcasts by a lot of gaming nerds and history nerds who like really cared about that kind of stuff. So they were always much more clear about like, yeah, like Starcraft is really big in South Korea for these specific reasons that it's, why it's big there versus how it had an impact in other parts of like Europe or the United States where it was certainly popular, but not quite to the same degree. And I feel like that's something that as we've been talking, I'm like, oh, it's been nice to have this combo where I'm actually getting a lot more of that context and a lot more of that history that is often when you're trying to follow this stuff, just sort of not given. And especially on the business side, which I, like you said, a whole episode about BTS, but also probably even a whole episode is kind of like how fans interpret the business side of these things. It's just really not how all of this stuff goes. So it's just, it's just like really, it's just to me like really, really fascinating just trying to like better wrap one's head around what is like fairly complicated, which can be a fairly complicated yeah. like intermeshing of multiple industries and especially the global dynamics like as they've changed, especially over the last 15 years, especially. But it's kind of like nice to sort of be like, oh yeah, like there is like some grounding here. It isn't all like you need to start from point zero as if like there was no history. Yeah, I mean, I think if if fans, you know, K-pop, any K-pop fans that are listening take anything away, it's that, you know, the the big three, they're not a cartel. <laughs> like, they're talent agencies. <laughs> and if, you know, even go back one layer, and, um, you know, SM and JYP are distributed by the same company, you know, um, uh, YG and HYBE, you know, Big Hit are distributed by the same, like, you know, arms. Yeah. So it's like, you know, when you're really racing to like, oh, Blackpink is going to beat BTS. Well, you know, it's the same subsidiary that makes all the money. So, <laughs> like, you know, um, just try to keep that in mind think that's that's always good to take away yeah well i want to say thank you so much for like having me on today this is very cool no i've been so excited like um it's really it was a lot of fun um kind of you know clarifying some of my own 
you know, received wisdom on some of this stuff and digging back. And I uh, checked out some pretty interesting books from the library. So it was fun. Yeah. (laughs) But um, maybe when we go, like, as we sort of wrap up, um, I did ask you to listen to what was the most divisive song on K-pop, like, Stan Internet of 2021. It was a song called Sticker. Now, (laughs) this song, if you looked at the reactions, um, was, you know, I heard it or saw it called like noise music, garbage, unlistenable, (laughs) like, 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 I mean, to like a fairly significant portion of Stan Twitter, this song sticker was essentially, you know, like if you were sitting in the opera house and um you know the right of spring came on it was that <laughs> like, like it was that unlistenable <laughs> no no what was your reaction when you listened to it i kind of liked it um, <laughs> yeah i thought i liked the production the production actually was like pretty tight <laughs> i guess it was yeah vague, yeah i guess i my ears are just attuned differently honestly like i was like oh yeah i like the production on this it's pretty cool um I, i'll be really honest like I was expecting, like, I don't know. I really was expecting some, like, Sophie-ass pots and pans based on, like, what you were, what you were telling me. But it was actually, like, pretty fun. It was pretty pleasant, right? Yeah, it's like a pretty chill song. But, I'll, but I'll, yeah, I, I guess I say that also because, like, I just have definitely heard much, much worse. So, I don't know. Yeah. I, was like, yeah. I just thought... Um, yeah, I really enjoyed hearing the opinion of an outsider because, uh, you know, when I listened to it, I was like, oh, yeah, I like this. <laughs> and reading some of the responses, I was like, wow, I don't know what you're listening to, but wow. Yeah. So, yeah. So I think we should probably go out with Sticker. Yes. Just so if there are any non-K-pop fans, you know, listening in, you can hear what was the most divisive song of 2021 in k-pop I <laughs> yeah so yeah so uh thanks for joining me and um yeah i'll talk to everybody next time bye
so we chillin' We'll put this all together, I'm the sticker for your love 그니까 보인 담아, uh, 들린 담아 바로 대답해 like Baby, yeah, yeah, yeah 이끌리는 느낌새 Yeah, yeah, yeah 더 가봐도 너의 중력 Yeah, yeah, yeah 남의 세계 당연하리 아주 가리에 내 태도가 Yeah, yeah, yeah 정신도 못 차리는 girl Yeah, yeah, yeah 거부할 수 없다가 baby girl Yeah, yeah, yeah You treat me like a boy 꿈을 쫓는 너를 나이처럼 말이야 Falling into my love 마시고 들어봐봐 이건 절대 입에 발린 말이 아니야 가져왔던 내 모두 Don't go.